You're listening to the Horizons Church Podcast. What's up? <laughs> Hi, buddy. How you doing? I'm great. I am too. Thank you for asking. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and thank you mm-hmm. for alerting me to your state of being currently. Oh, yeah. I'm doing fancy free. Doing what now? Let's move on. <laughs> oh, shoot. We're on to another creative commentary today. Oh, feels so good. Getting right into it here. You know what I'm saying? Yes. Because that's how we do. We don't joke around, except that we do. Yeah, we don't all laugh. All the time. <laughs> yeah, we don't laugh all the time at everything, even when it's inappropriate. No. That's, who's the, That's a different podcast. Not us. Different host. You're thinking of Joe, a different Ethan and just <laughs> yep. who, the people who host a podcast with names that are... So anyway, <laughs> today is the book of Esther, and... You want to say that again? Can you say it again? Can I hear you say that again? Today is the book of Esther. I, I like the enunciation, that's all. That's, Esther. I mean, you know, I feel like you could say it like Esther. Yeah. I feel like I've heard that before. It's very American. Many times. Very American. But I want Esther. to say Esther. I like it. Esther. It just really arrested my attention. Yeah. Esther. Esther. The book of Esther, which is rather unique in the canon of the scriptures for reasons which we will discuss. Yeah, it really is. Today, getting right into it, (laughs) is a pretty incredible and intriguing book, and it shines a floodlight on God's providential and quite unexpected methods of delivering his people and working in history. That's really the most foundational theme that we see in this book. It centers primarily on four characters. Xerxes, who is the king of Persia at the time of this book. Haman, his highest ranking official. Esther, the title character who becomes queen of Persia. Right. And Mordecai, who is Esther's uncle. And the tension in this story arises from the heritage of aforementioned Esther and Mordecai because they both happen to be Jews who are living in the kingdom of Persia, which, as you can probably imagine, eventually creates conflict because that just seems to be the way it goes with doesn't even matter where they are there will be conflict yes that's just history that's how it goes that is just the way it goes all that said the first and perhaps most stunning thing to note about esther as you're reading it is that god is not mentioned even once yeah his name never shows up in the book it's like every conversation i have at a coffee shop Uh, it's like listening to Norwegian black metal, except not, am I right? <laughs> really obscure reference there, and I apologize. Somebody's going to be Googling that or something. Please, what the heck is wrong with these kids? Maybe, maybe don't Google but, <laughs> So, within the confines of the story, he's never named, he never explicitly appears, and he never directly speaks. Right. Which may cause you to wonder, how can a book that doesn't even mention God make it into the canon of Scripture? Well, well I'm glad you asked, listener. <laughs> I'm glad, what was that we said? I'm One glad of these I episodes? asked. Yeah, I'm glad I, I'm glad I asked that question. Because that's the sort of subtle brilliance of the whole thing, is the fact that God is never explicitly mentioned, nor visibly present. It becomes an invitation to see how God works in unseen ways behind the scenes, yeah, so to speak, which is really how we experience it. Exactly. In our own day, right? Yes. We don't visibly see God manifest in the way that you might see him, say, when he's giving the law to Moses mm-hmm. in Exodus. We don't hear his voice thunder from Mount Sinai. His providence is working in our lives in thousands of unseen ways. Exactly. It's like, it's one of the most familiar portrayals mm-hmm. of God in a situation. 
resurrection that we see in the entire Bible. Yeah. The question then becomes, okay, well, how do we see that play out in the book of Esther? We most notably see it in the way that the book is structured and in the ironical reversals of the narrative itself. So we don't want to get into the whole detailed story, right? That's for you to do as the listener, right? Our hope is that you will engage and you will actually read the book. Mm-hmm. But to act as sort of a guidepost for you to kind of give you an idea of what to be on the lookout for, here is one example that is pretty indicative of the other events in the book. And this particular example is actually what provides the narrative turning point in the story. So here's where we're at. Haman, who is the Persian official, right? He's kind of the second command to King Xerxes. He hates Mordecai the Jew. He despises him. Why? Well, because everyone bows the knee to Haman except Mordecai. Literally, like as a matter of homage, they bow the knee to Haman. But Mordecai does not. Clearly, it's not required by their law. There was this kind of expectation, at least, that, oh, you're going to pay homage to this guy. Okay. Right? And Haman Haman was pretty clear in wanting that and demanding that. clearly. And so then when Mordecai doesn't, Well, now he is ticked off. I just love Mordecai so much right now. (laughs) He just, he just, he's going to stick it to the man. Yeah. And I respect it. Like, I bow to God, buddy, not you, darn it. (laughs) Quote, (laughs) verbatim, Mordecai in the ancient Aramaic. (laughs) Just kidding. No. But here's the thing, right? So you have this tension set up between Haman, who represents Persia, and Mordecai, who's representing the Jews. The thing is, is that Mordecai had actually saved the king's life before this had started happening. So long story short, he'd overheard a plot to assassinate the king. He'd reported it and he'd ended up saving the king's life, right? So here's what happens. One night, King Xerxes can't sleep. So as one does when they can't sleep, they call for the royal records to be brought up and read, you know, as one does when they can't sleep. I do it all the time. That's that's me. You know, I'm like, Morgan, bring up the royal records. Oh, the royal records. Read these things. Put me right to sleep. (laughs) So these are brought, they're read to him, and eventually they get to the point where someone has recorded that Mordecai saved the king's life and Xerxes realizes, oh, I never honored Mordecai for saving my life. I never paid homage to him Which for keeps this. you up even more. It's, the, it's yes. the same thing where you remember deeds of your past or missed opportunities of your past and your eyes snap open in fear and anxiety. Yes. And, like, <laughs> I never honored this man. That's, it's, that's me, but in much yeah. less royal things like I'll right. wake up randomly or as I'm about to fall asleep and like, what about that embarrassing thing I did in like the fifth grade? Exactly. So, that embarrassing time I didn't honor this man's life. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Xerxes. So here's Xerxes thinking, oh yeah, I never honored Mordecai for saving my life. And about the time this is happening, <laughs> Haman comes storming into the palace because he is so angry at Mordecai for not bowing the knee that he wants to have him executed. I mean, the pacing of this plot is perfect. Yes. It's so good. It is. But before he can make clear his diabolical plot, the king asks him, you know, he's, oh, hey, Haman, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And so Haman, the narcissist that he is. He's so full of himself. Yes. Thinks that he's the man the king wants to honor. And the, the king is just, you know, trying to mm. veil yeah. this. <laughs> And so Haman pulls out this crazy list and he, he started, I mean, it's as if he thought through this before yeah. as if, oh, well, if the king were ever to want to honor me, here's exactly what I'd want him to do. Oh, I have no doubt. So he says, 
Let this man, whom the king delights to honor, wear royal robes that the king has worn. That's very forward. It is. He's basically saying, hey, buddy, let me wear your kingly... Come on. Yeah, not even being subtle about it. So he says that. He says, put him on a horse the king has ridden. Set a crown on his head and let a noble official lead this man through the city proclaiming his honor. I mean, he's basically doing everything but asking for the king's wife. Precisely correct. Yeah. And so he gets to the end of all that and he must be feeling really full of himself and happy about this, thinking that this is about to happen to him. And then, lo and behold, the king looks at Haman and says, Great! Do that for Mordecai! (laughs) And you lead him through the city, proclaiming his honor. That doesn't sting at all. And so that's what Haman ends up doing. He ends up doing all of this for Mordecai. And he ends up so horrified and yeah. upset about this. He basically goes home like weeping, crying like a big Honestly, baby. Honestly, you would. You would. This yeah. would. I mean, if you are that full of yourself, it does not get more demoralizing than this. And that's just one example. These are the kind of ironic sort of reversals that you'll begin to see all throughout the book yeah. as evidence of God's unseen hand. And you may also remember, if you're familiar with the story of Esther, this is the same book where Haman builds a gallows to hang Mordecai on, builds this huge gallows, and then he ends up hung on his own gallows. Yeah. Another reversal of that. Like, yeah. it, is, it keeps coming full circle. And you just see these kind of coincidences all throughout the book. Heavy quote, unquote. Yes, heavy on unquote coincidences. They're not coincidences implied. So by the end of the book, we see pretty clearly how God, even though he hasn't been explicitly mentioned or visibly present, how he has lined up everything from the most seemingly inconsequential details to work deliverance, not just for Mordecai, right? Because he ends up saving Mordecai from being killed by Haman. Right. But again, not to get into all the details, that conflict ends up going national and Haman wants all of the Jews eradicated. Yeah. So we see how God, through these little details, not only works salvation for Mordecai, but for the whole Jewish people who have been exiled. That's actually where Esther primarily comes into play, right? She right. she arises and becomes the queen, even though she's a Jew. Yeah. And when this plight reaches their ears that Haman has made it so that all the Jews are going to be eradicated on this distant day, Mordecai goes to Esther and says, you don't know that you haven't been raised up for just such a time as this. Oh, yeah. And, you know, of course, in that day, if you went to the king without being summoned, it was punishable by death. So she's like, well, he hasn't summoned me, but if I perish, I perish. She's really sticking her first world deck out. Yeah, that really is literally true. It is is true, yeah. (laughs) And so, of course, she ends up doing it. Everyone is saved, and we just see how all these details, all these things have come together to work out salvation. And so God's provident hand is always at work, even when you can't clearly or explicitly see it, which actually leads to a final thematic observation in Esther. That's the primary theme to take note of. But the other thing that is kind of secondary to that is that this book is full of a lot of moral ambiguity. Yeah, it is. Yes. And in a lot of cases, downright immorality. Yeah. <laughs> like, speaking just from the Mosaic Law's perspective, there's a lot of drunkenness in this story. A lot of drunkenness. A surprising amount of drunkenness. <laughs> In this story, there's some suspect beauty pageants taking place right in the beginning of the story. There's no way to justify it. Yeah. You don't get away. No. Yeah. And you'll understand that when you read it. And then there's, of course, the obvious ethnic animosity uh, between, you know, Haman the 
Actually, Haman's not Persian, actually. He's an Agagite, I think. He's descended from the Canaanites, but okay. still ethnic animosity is the point. And, and you see this play out on a really massive scale later yeah. on as well. Almost genocidal. Yes. Here's the thing about all that, is you have all this moral ambiguity, immorality, and sometimes our heroes in the story, Esther and Mordecai, are right in the middle of all of that. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, Esther, right in the beginning, is kind of willing to take part in this I mean, it made me, when I was reading it, it's funny because I I actually did just finish this the other day, which is uncanny. But there were, I mean, many times I was thinking like, I felt like I was almost just trying to figure out, is this a cultural thing? Is it, I was trying to maybe explain Mm -hmm. some of that because yeah, you see your main characters in this and you're, it's, it's a little bit, it's different. Yeah. Is this what it feels like? Is this as suspect as it appears or is it just their cultural practices? Is it okay? Where is that cultural divide? Yeah. It's a little weird. It's murky. It is. And so here are those two heroes that happen to be in the middle of all these things. Yeah. And they're not necessarily moral exemplars. Right. But we still vividly see that even though they are perhaps stained in some way by their sin or the pagan culture that they're residing in, God still is going to keep his promises. Yeah. And the book never paints them as moral exemplars necessarily either. Maybe Esther's moment where she goes before the king and is willing to perish if it comes to that, that might be one example of it. But other than that, doesn't really comment on it one way or the other. What we do see, though, is that God is still working, even in the midst of these moments and these times where perhaps it doesn't seem so There's just, this is a little bit of like a, a, a bunny trail here. But there's a point when the king is like, yeah, do whatever you want. You can use my seal. Yeah. And Mordecai gets involved. Mm-hmm. And it's I'm reading this, I'm like, I think he's just having too much fun with this. Yeah. He's, he's <laughs> yeah. really, he's, uh, okay. Yeah. He might actually be the mastermind of this entire thing. <laughs> like, okay, buddy, I thought you were a cool rebel, but <laughs> you're making me anxious. Now, yeah, see, no one is untainted here. Yeah. So it's a unique story. It's pretty neat. Yeah. The other thing is it's not a terribly long It's not. Read. That's how I finished it. <laughs> you know me. Okay. <laughs> So if I said I just finished it, it's a real thing. And it means it was short. Oh. So yeah, it actually, surprisingly to me as I was thinking through this, has some pretty neat thematic ties to one of my favorite cinematic pieces. This is a part of our childhood. It is. It's 2002. It is. Just put yourself in those shoes. It's 2002. You just read Esther. What do you think of next? Aliens. (laughs) The connection is so obvious. How can you all not see it? And it's funny because I'm not joking. <laughs> but the movie, the movie's called Signs. Uh, you yes. may have heard of it. This is mm. back when Mel Gibson was in his prime. And <laughs> not yet, like. Not yet anti-Semitic <laughs> and drunk all the time. <laughs> and Joaquin Phoenix was and still is in his prime as always, as he always yes. shall be. And Rory Culkin, the Culkin brother you might not know, but absolutely definitely should, was yes. a wee child. Yeah. He was like 12 years old. Mm -hmm. That's incredible. But um, before you tune off, out, tune out, whatever, before you tune out, this is not a History Channel special on ancient aliens. It is not. That's not my angle. That is for next week. (laughs) I wish. Um, I will say this. Something I noticed, I love when this happens. You lay out the the thing and I'm like, oh, look at all these connections. I didn't notice when I did my research. And when I say research, I mean, I watched it again. (laughs) But we have a cast of four characters characters here as well, which is 
handy. That's convenient. You have the single father, who mm-hmm. is a retired reverend, played by Mel Gibson. His younger brother has moved in. He's a, a former minor league baseball player with mm-hmm. a few records under his belt. He's, yeah. You know, he really had something. The young son, who is, like I said, like 11 or 12, played by Rory Culkin. Very brainy. He's curious. He's he's good kid. Yeah. And the youngest, the daughter, who's just, I don't know, younger. Here's the thing, right? <laughs> well, especially for this era and having child actors, well-acted, all of it is. But she's that classic annoying kid who always wants a glass of water but never finishes it and leaves them littered all around the house. Like, we are a family of four. We need those glasses. <laughs> they go in the dishwasher. <laughs> and here are 20, and here are 20 on top of the television. We're drinking out of bowls now. <laughs> It's, but, you know, that's like, that's the character. But to set this up, to set up the real story, we got to slowly go off the rails. Whoa. My oh, yeah. favorite thing to do when we're it's talking. Great. It takes place in this secluded farmhouse in a sleepy rural town. It's got every hallmark of that sleepy rural town you could think of. It has the tiny corner bookstore. It's got the nice, like the kindly policewoman who's like the perfect character for a policewoman. It, mm-hmm. it really does feel like the late 90s or the early early 2000s yeah in such a way that not only is the time period does it feel like that but the visuals it, it feels like here it does it feels like lost creek or like nutter fort or philippi i mean it really they really nail that little secluded town sort of feeling even though it mostly takes place at this farmhouse yeah but as we're there we get to know the family and their history and maybe most importantly their loss because yeah. they've really gone through a lot. I mean, a whole town knows it. Yeah. The policewoman even says as much to Mel Gibson. Because six months ago, his wife was killed in an accident. He questions his faith. He leaves the church. And that's when the brother moves in just to help out. Because yeah. really, he's he's a bit aloof now. <laughs> it's, yeah. You know, and very bitter. Mm-hmm. So they're dealing with all this loss, the struggle. And as this happens, the whole world begins to sink into a fear. Things start happening. You get crop circles. You get lights in the sky. I mean, the classic signs. <laughs> signs. signs. The news is on 24-7 with stories from all around the world. Uh, people are glued to their screens. And this is one of my favorite things about the whole movie. And this is why, over a decade later, this is still one of my favorite films. Yeah. Because it feels incredibly true to life. It does. It's not like the Alien movie. Well, like Alien, for <laughs> yeah. example. You know, the classic horror movie where you're out in space and there's this hostile force and you yes. gotta fight it. This is exactly what would happen oh, if yeah. real aliens were to suddenly and mysteriously begin making their presence known on Earth. Especially in the early 2000s. Yes. To the extent where it's like you start with the people who are like, no, this is crazy. Like, these things happen. Yeah. And then the slow descent into we're wearing tinfoil hats because all yeah. we, for all we know, maybe it keeps them from reading our minds or something. It's, yeah, it, like you grasp for anything because yeah. you don't know how to process it. Yeah. And I don't want this to come off as I'm making light of anything or, or being disrespectful because I'm going to make a comparison here that it's not in the notes. Yeah. As a point to how realistic this felt when people are glued to their screens and they are afraid. It's what it felt like one year prior in September. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. everyone is afraid. No one knows what to think. Yeah, no, absolutely. What, no one knows what's next. And this film, it's not this CGI flash show. Right. You know, it's not, I mean, yeah, there has to be some in it, but it very much does not hang its hat on that. It's about a family mm-hmm. in a secluded farmhouse, afraid of what's happening to the world, wondering what tomorrow is going to bring. And it's, in that way, it's very grounded and it's yeah. very chilling. 
because mm-hmm. it is not about it, yeah it is in the sci-fi realm but it's almost sci-fi light yeah. it's the suspense of these real people that's basically how esther and mordecai feel oh, as they're I'm approaching sure. that narrative turning point where they think our whole people might be wiped off yeah the face of this kingdom exactly what are we going to do yeah you you don't know what tomorrow's going to bring because yeah. it feels like everything's out of your control so through this whole gauntlet of paranoia you start to see, and you don't even realize it at the time, which is, is so brilliant, all of these little inconsequential details that are, you know, pertinent to the characters. Yeah. They're just the little quirks. They're the insignificant details. They actually lay the groundwork for the climax to ultimately become the linchpin of the entire film. Yeah. Before you ever know anything's happening. And it, what's so clever about that is that, again, it's something that feels real. And it's even yeah. something we see in Esther. Past actions yeah. of Mordecai mm-hmm. play a fundamental role in the survival of a whole people. Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm kind of like blowing it up a little bit. It, the other things came into play. <laughs> but it was the starting point. I, who knows what would have happened if that hadn't happened. Right. So these tiny little things, like the fact that they lost their mother, Yeah. you know, and where that puts Mel Gibson and, and the fact that his brother moved in and he used to play baseball. Like these weird things that just make them who they are make the plot possible. Yeah, and you had mentioned something that I thought was really, really particularly cool about that is that I think in some movies like this, and even in a story like Esther, there's a literary device called the Deo Ek Machina, yeah. which means God from the machine. It was happened when these Greek plays, when they would get these <laughs> absolutely insane plots and the playwright couldn't figure out how to conclude it. So they'd literally have someone pretending to, you know, play the part of a god yeah. lowered in the rafters from, you know, the machine, <laughs> and they would save the day, you know, like, there were no yeah. real resolution. It's like, what the heck? Like a totally fake, like yeah. the ending of Get Out. Yeah. Sorry if you haven't seen it. I've just ruined it. <laughs> hey, listen, if you haven't seen it yet, that's your own thing. Yeah, it is. But this movie, which you could say, oh, well, something like this could be Deo Ek Machina. It yeah. could be that. But it's not because it was built into the story from the beginning. Yeah. All the way through. And that's the same thing with Esther. It's not God from the machine. God doesn't even, you know, his name isn't even in the story. Exactly. It's all the little things through his providence he works out. Yeah, exactly. To bring the story to a conclusion. And something and something you said earlier about these kind of heavy quote-unquote coincidences, that's actually something that is expounded upon in this film. There's this little conversation between the two brothers, between Mel and, and Joaquin Phoenix. And uh, they're sitting on the couch and all of this stuff is unfolding. And, you know, Joaquin Phoenix is like, he, he kind of wants some comfort from this ex-reverend. Yeah. You know, like, please tell me something that at least pretend like you believe it. And um, they have this conversation about, about coincidence, if, if anything really matters, and what kind of person you are to perceive it that way. And it's something actually, I didn't, I don't know if, I've seen this movie how many times? I, could, I couldn't even tell you. But I don't think I really paid attention to this conversation until last night, mm-hmm. believe it or not. And it's not just about the whole, the title of the film, it's not just about crop circles and lights in the sky, or, you know, these obvious, quote-unquote, signs of other life. On a much deeper level, we see how it's actually about how we perceive these things mm-hmm. around us, how we see the signs, you know, how we quantify the incomprehensible and what it means to us, what that might be a sign of. And it feels like in some ways we see that as the subtext of Esther, like how we see these incredibly, unbelievably, you know, perfect twists of fate, how we process that and how we see God in the middle of those unbelievable situations and how it's just turned just so perfectly. That's quite poetic. Oh, man. I hadn't realized that about Signs either. Yeah. And I've seen that movie how many times? And they, I mean, they straight up have a conversation about it, but it really, it really sank in when I just watched it. 
Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's crazy. Because then there's, you know, there are the people, what, how is it he says it? I'm going to butcher it. I don't know. But he talks about it's actually, people's... It's really long. I was going to quote it, and then at the scene, the scene just yeah. didn't end. Yeah, I was going to say, that's, I don't remember that being one of the longer dialogue pieces, but he but, talks yeah. about people who see signs as coincidences or as yeah. something more, something to that effect, right? Yeah, whether or not we see these signs as a miracle or we see them as something that, well, it could mean anything, but ultimately we're on our own, you know, and, and how that affects us as people. It's actually, yeah. it's really compelling. More, It's even better than we're making it out to yes. be. Yes. Just watch the movie. It's a yeah. classic. I can't believe point. we actually talked about it without spoiling it. Yeah, I, that's amazing. I, so please, 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 guys, go watch it. Yeah, that's, if you have not yet seen it, you are in for, yeah. like, by the, I'll never forget watching that movie for the first time. Oh. And by the time you get to the end, you are like, yeah. oh my gosh. Like one of those. This is when we were rewinding VHS tapes. Yeah. To be like, what? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> this was M. Night Shyamalan when he was in it, probably his finest yes. filmmaking form. I 100% agree. It's just a classic. Yeah. And, uh, and I'll say this, especially for a 2002 film, it is so well shot. Mm-hmm. I didn't think it would hold up. I thought it was going to be riding nostalgia, if I'm honest, a bit. Nostalgia plus the things that you know we love so much about it. But no, it's actually well shot. It actually feels like a like a Fox Searchlight film. It's mm-hmm. it's really nice. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Kudos just, to you. It was a treat. Yes. Kudos to Shyamalan for yeah. making what I hope and and believe will be a timeless film. It is to me. It is at least yeah. If nothing else, I own I see this book. sign as a miracle. <laughs> <laughs> Ah, well, I think that uh, concludes our discussion for the day. Mm-hmm. If you have any questions about this, you want to nerd out about the movie Signs, Certainly. or talk about Esther more, send those questions to podcast at horizonschurch.net. Yes. I realized that enunciation, I did something different there. Maybe it's not super clear. I mean, if you're a regular listener, you know how this goes. It's you know podcast. Podcast. At horizonschurch.net. Podcast, podcast at horizonschurch.net. <laughs> podcast. Singular. Just but one. Don't, but don't type the word singular. No, just podcast at horizonstress.net. Yeah, the most obvious and clear address at horizonstress.net. But, it, but not that. But don't it's actually, type that. It's, what you'll type is podcast. That was a description. Of that was a description. <laughs> anyway, or hit us up on social media <laughs> or whenever you see us. All right, thanks for listening. We'll catch you next time. Mm-hmm.